Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Today, I'm going to be talking about the big themes that I got from my reading about 18th century politics. So, I think that we can understand the story of 18th century politics by seeing it as the development of a new regime. In 1688, you get the deposing of the Stuart dynasty, uh, and the beginning of something new. Uh, William III comes over from the Netherlands. Uh, He doesn't have any kids. There's some disagreement about the succession. And then in 1715, you have a new dynasty, the Hanoverians. But this is more than simply a switch between rulers. It changes the nature of the British state's involvement in everyday life itself. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this change really is. Uh, Some people, like J.C.D. Clark, go so far as to say that there really wasn't any change at all and that the fundamental social nexus of politics remained the same, a deep hierarchy in which church, king, and aristocracy were seamlessly knit together. Other people go so far as to say that 1688 is the uh, beginning of a new world. We can look at Stephen Pincus for this, who sees the conflict between James II and William III not as the conflict between traditional uh, politics and new modern politics, but a competition between two different kinds of modernity, that modernity, no matter what, after 1688, is going to happen, that you're going to have a uh, aggressive, uh, bureaucratic, and sometimes uh, uh, activist state after 1688. I want to take a middle ground. I don't think that the people who were involved in the Glorious Revolution knew that they were creating the kind of world that they were creating. And I don't think that the importance of 1688, despite, uh, you know, contemporaries who read into it the beginning of, you know, a particular kind of liberalism, I don't think that that's the important thing either. I think that the important things are that it binds together Uh, the monarch and the parliament because of the necessity of the king or the queen getting uh, an annual tax revenue. Um, And also, it pushes Britain into a century of war against France. So let's first start to talk about the development of a truce or an alliance between king and parliament. Um, This we might sum up as the idea of the king in parliament, the idea that uh, sovereignty resided not just in a king who got their authority through the divine right of kings, through some sort of apostolic succession of monarchy, but rather that sovereignty lied in this combination of king and this representative body of parliament, which some people, you know, identify as being Uh, uh, deeply ingrained in the fabric of British life itself. So I want to, that was an ideological argument for King and Parliament, but I just want to say that it's practical. The importance of it is practical. It wasn't that people changed their ideas, it was that the way that things worked bureaucratically changed. One of the striking changes that happened was that the King needed to go to Parliament every year to get money. The king's civil list, basically the allowance that the king got, uh, was 
way too small for the king to want to do anything that the king might want to do. Uh, if the king wanted to wage war, and it was still within the king's prerogative to wage war, to set foreign policy, to decide all of those big ideas, if the king wanted to wage war, he could definitely declare a war, but he would need to go to parliament to get the money. Because of this, you get the slow development of a system in which uh, you have a group of ministers who act uh, for the king, who cement together a parliamentary majority in order to make sure that the executive can get its money. And when I say slowly, I really mean slowly. Uh, it takes about 30 years to really congeal. Uh, from 1688 to 1720, there's not really a ton of certainty about how exactly this new system is going to work out. There are frequent elections, there's a lot of rage between different parties, and there's a lot of fundamental choices that have to be made about what the new regime is going to do, about whether the king really does have supremacy or whether the parliament has supremacy. The big story, though, is that after 1720, you get the rise of a kind of stability. Walpole acts as the king's prime minister. Uh, he manages to knit together particular coalitions for about 20 years that continually bring parliamentary majorities to whatever it is that George I and George II want to do. Supporters of this will say, great, he makes stability in Britain. He takes what was like 80 years of instability about what the fundamental nature of British politics are, and he ends it. Critics will say that he ends it by basically paying everyone off. The Walpolean scheme is to get people on his side by giving favors, by giving patronage, by giving people plum positions and plum jobs, by paying people off. You can see this, for example, in his attempt to end the land tax in 1733. The idea is uh, that the base of his support is through uh, country gentlemen, and he wants to lower their taxes. It pisses people off and it doesn't work because he wants to replace the land tax with taxes on consumer goods like whiskey. This, after Walpole is dead, is understood as the old corruption or the thing. This kind of skeezy combination between parliamentarians and uh, the king or the queen to get a majority through whatever means necessary. But it works. Uh, more or less. And oftentimes the story of politics over the next, you know, uh, 80, 100, 150 years after Walpole is the uh, differing abilities of different prime ministers to actually be able to get parties together to maintain these majorities. But it's easy to make too much of the supremacy of parliament when we talk about this. The king still made foreign policy, he still set the ministries of government, and people continue to see ministerial positions as participating in monarchical power. And this was not trite. Uh, it led to a kind of problem. How could you oppose the government in power without opposing the king? How could you oppose Walpole without also being treasonous to George I or George II, whose agent Walpole was? And this led to some hand-wringing. 
One solution was to use the Prince of Wales as a site of legitimate organized resistance. This became less and less of a problem uh, as the century wore on, and in the late 18th century, it seems that people do not have any compunctions about criticizing the government. And also, you have to insist that, at least initially, people did not buy in to the decisions that were made about who should apportion power. People did not buy in in 1700 or 1715 or even 1745 into the decisions about where the lines between parliament and king were drawn. One of the big choices that was made was to say that parliament, not the king, not the natural succession um, that went from father to son, but parliament decided who was actually going to be king. This was the succession crisis. The idea that the next person in line to the throne had certain limitations placed on them. Most notably, they couldn't be Catholic. This led to the accession, uh, instead of uh, uh, James's kids, of George I, a Hanoverian who spoke bad English, lived in Germany for a ton of the time, and was deeply unpopular. In 1715, when he came over uh, to accept the crown, there were widespread riots. There was widespread uh, continued resistance, um, and there was even an invasion that was only half-heartedly beaten back. Uh, this happened again in 1745, and there was a significant uh, identity between Tories, uh, one big political party, and Jacobites, people who did not believe that uh, the Hanoverian succession was legitimate. And the Glorious Revolution itself led to a lot of people turning their back on government. Um, about a tenth of all naval officers quit and went over to France and joined the French Navy. There was a significant minority uh, of churchmen who decided that they could not make the allegiance oath to the new king and uh, were kicked out of the church and became non-jurors. So it's easy to make too much of both uh, the parliament's power and of the new regime's solid hold on people. What we should make too much of, though, is that it worked. That Britain did not have a revolution that Britain did not fall apart, that even though the new succession was bound together with blood and with effort and with taxes, it was still bound together. So the other big change that happens with the new regime is geopolitical. Charles II and James II, the previous two kings, had been oriented towards France. The biggest foreign adversary in uh, late 17th century England were the Dutch, who competed with them for a lot of shipping. Uh, and a lot of British uh, uh, imperial uh, strategy in the 17th century was to cut off the Dutch. However, with the coming of William III, a Dutch king, there was an about face in British geopolitical orientation. Now Britain challenged France. And France knew it. And Britain knew it. And this led to a period of about a century and a half of recurrent war. As I say that, I just want to point out that it need not have been that way, that this is not inevitable. Uh, the biggest moment of this is uh, uh, Walpole. Robert Walpole's entire policy was to limit war, was to stay out of wars with France 
in order to build up uh, the old corruption, to make everybody rich and happy so that they would accept the new regime. And for 20 years, it worked. For 20 years, there was peace in this century of war. And we can thank the corruption of Robert Walpole and his desire not to drain the coffers for that. But let's now look at how war shaped politics. One of the biggest things is the creation of the debt, what's called the fiscal military state. Uh, this was borrowed from the Netherlands. The idea was that the government would give bonds that would be funded by particular bits of taxation, and that this would allow it to defray the costs of war over a long period of time. This allowed two things. It allowed it to focus its fiscal energies. It allowed it to target its payments for the times when it needed it, like rebuilding fleets, like hiring mercenaries, because war is intermittent and uh, uh, you know happens at only particular points, but you can raise taxes forever. The second thing that it did was political, that it knit together a wealthy and powerful constituency who would end up supporting the continuation of the government no matter what. These were fund holders, people in London and elsewhere who actually owned the government debt. As the government debt ballooned from about 16 million in uh, uh, the early 18th century to 36 million uh, at the end of uh, the War of Spanish Succession to 76 million in 1750, to 132 million in 1763, to 242 million in 1784. As this debt ballooned, more and more people were buying into it. And everybody who owned government debt now had a political program. Don't let the government fall. Because those people who have invested in the 16 million or the 36 million or the 242 million, if the government falls, they lose all their money. So they are interested in the continuing health of the state. Now, why was war so expensive? Well, it has to do with the introduction of gunpowder. Gunpowder changes how war is made and makes it more capital intensive. This is especially true in Britain, which needed to rely on an incredibly expensive navy to defend its really, really long coastline and its preponderance of uh, cities really close to the coast. And this was a success. Administrative and fiscal reforms allowed British sea power to become incredibly potent and incredibly flexible. In uh, 1693, for instance, the British fleet, the entire fleet, could be at sea for only two weeks without returning to land. That's not super flexible. In 1763, the fleet could be at sea for half a year without ever returning to land. That is a huge increase in organizational capacity. And we can see this increase in organizational capacity in the results of war. And we can say, four out of five big wars, Britain won. It won the Nine Years' War, the War of Spanish Succession, the War of Austrian Succession, the Seven Years' War, lost the American War, and won the Napoleonic Wars. It did pretty good for itself. And we can also see this as having political consequences. The successes, the continued successes against France gave Britain, not just England, not just Scotland, not just Wales, and not just Ireland, but Britain, an identity. It became a master metaphor for what being a British person was. 
Britons were not France. Britons were winners, Frenches were losers. Britain had a parliament, France had a king. France was chaotic, Britain was well-governed. France was Catholic, Britain was Protestant, and so on. The victories, uh, many naval, through these centuries of war, led to Britain making a particular kind of identity, sometimes jingoistic, sometimes accepting and tolerant. And these successes also pushed Britain further out into the world. Imperial battles with France in the 1740s drew uh, North American colonies into uh, uh, settling further and further west into the Ohio, and often they got trounced. George Washington's first battles, for instance, were in the War of Jenkins' Ear, where he was fighting with uh, Native Americans and French people uh, far to the west of where British people were settled. Need, the need to fight France in India in the Seven Years' War led to Britain getting a lot of mercenaries and winning in the Battle of Plessy, which turned the East India Company from a weird kind of, you know, trading hub into a political power that levied taxes from Indian people. It changed the nature of British uh, uh, power in India from mercantile to state-like. Strategic considerations of needing to exert sea power led Britain to settling uh, Mediterranean ports like Gibraltar and Malta. South Africa similarly was settled so that Britain could have a refueling station on the way over to India. Um, Australia was settled because uh, it might have been a uh, promising source of timber used in masts, which were actually really difficult to come by, and because it was a dumping ground for undesirables who could no longer be dumped in the American colonies because the American colonies re revolted. And here in our, you know, familiar narrative of American independence, we can see the final piece of the political fallout of this century of war. As Britain was able to exert power through its greater organization and administrative push, Britain grew. The scope of what actually became within the power of Britain to control increased. And in some ways, this giant had feet of clay. A big question was, who actually was included in this idea of Britain? And being included, what did that mean? Some tensions came up after the successes of the Seven Years' War. After Quebec was uh, taken from the French, there was a huge question. How can we deal with this large population of Catholics who speak French? Should we just kick them out of government? Well, that would mean a civil war. That would mean more expense. That would mean more bloodshed. Or do we somehow include them in the political nation? There was an attempt to do so, and it led to a lot of upset. Uh, it led to, eventually, riots in London, the likes of which no one had ever seen before, with the Gordon riots. And similarly, with the American Revolution, there was a question of, well, what does it even mean to be a Briton? What does it mean to be an Englishman? These people in North America had been fighting on behalf of the British government for generations. They thought of themselves as Britons, as English people. However, they were now being asked to shoulder new kinds of responsibilities. Uh, there was continued discussion about 
whether or not the central government in London had the right to tax the colonies. And this was a problem because the colonies did not have any kind of representation in London. They had representation at home, they had their own political communities, but they were unable to, you know, have anything to say in Parliament. Parliament would say, well, look, lots of people in England and in Scotland do not have any sort of say in government. That doesn't matter. Like the people in unincorporated cities, you are virtually represented. Your interests are being looked out for. But the Americans didn't buy it. And it's that fundamental tension, how to deal with the increasing costs and the increasing benefits of empire that led to the American Revolution. Thanks very much for listening to Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet at me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E, T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Thanks very much to Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. I'll be back this afternoon talking about the big, big idea in British history. Thanks for listening.